Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Uh, You may know that several weeks ago, I took a trip to Washington, D.C. We had the Provincial Council of the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, Provincial Council is, it's an annual business meeting, essentially, for our church. And you've got all of the bishops, you've got elected representatives from each diocese, uh, clergy, ministry leaders, all of these things on display. Um, They vote on thrilling matters like, you know, budget allocation, committee members, governance, wordsmithing, constitution, and canons, that kind of thing. Um, And so really the the joy of being there is just the fellowship with other leaders. Um, And I'll say that when I was there, uh, there was an almost palpable level of of fatigue and just broader discouragement. Um, and, And with everyone I talked with, you could see just the effect of just collective anxiety and difficulty of the last few years. Um, As they gave reports on attendance and these kinds of things, you saw the effect of the kind of turmoil and turbulence we have been uh, living in. But there was also resilience and endurance and hope evident uh, in the church. And for us, I want you to know that when I was there meeting with leaders, there was incredible uh, support and encouragement, and really a surprising level of awareness of what God has been up to in and through this young church as we've kind of gotten started uh, and navigated uh, this time together. uh, So many of our bishops and rectors and other leaders have been, uh, they're signed up for our newsletter list. Um, They watch the pictures that come out on social media. They call from time to time. Uh, They're following what's happening here. And they are, uh, they've been praying for us. Uh, They've invested in us. Many of them have. They're cheering for us. They are supporting us. Um, One of my friends, he is the rector of a large church uh, just outside Baltimore. And I saw him and said, hey, guess what? This past Sunday, uh, during our prayers of the people, we prayed for you, St. Thomas Anglican Church in Athens, Georgia. Y'all are one of our outreach partners and we're excited about what God is doing in your midst. Um, I would try and kind of share, give an update. Here's what's happening. And so many would say, yeah, we know. It's incredible. We're following along. Uh, we've been praying for you. We're so glad uh, that the work seems to be flourishing, especially when we look around and it's more discouragement um, and things are not flourishing. Um, and I bring that up because we're going to spend the next few weeks, we're going to follow the New Testament lectionary readings Uh, through the letter to the Colossians, uh, mainly chapters 1 through 3. And so we're going to have a a sermon series on those, and I want to introduce Colossians to you today. Um, Colossians is written to a church in Colossae, Colossae. It's the city in uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, Well, it used to be a city. Uh, It would be located in modern-day Turkey. That's where the ruins are right now. It's in the Lycus Valley of Phrygia, the southwest part of that. It's in the interior of Asia Minor, again, now Turkey. It's about 100 miles inland uh, from Ephesus. And right now, it's just a mound covered over. Um, They're actually scheduled this year, finally, to begin excavation of Colossae. And we're 
those of us who are New Testament nerds are very encouraged that this work is finally beginning, and maybe in 30 years we'll get some reports uh, from this dig at Colossae. Uh, but it's interesting. We're going to read their mail. We're going to see how this incredible letter uh, gives us practical theology, uh, ethic for growth in our individual walk with the Lord, and as a church for our broader mission together. Um, imagine my friend in Baltimore. Uh, he's a senior pastor. He's been a church planter, a uh, friend and mentor to me. He's overjoyed about the progress here at St. Thomas. Imagine if he wrote a letter to you. He doesn't know you, but he knows of the work. He's been praying for you, cheering for us, supporting us. Imagine if he wrote you a letter. And that's actually pretty similar to what's happening here uh, in the book of Colossians, because St. Paul doesn't know this church, but he's writing to this young, growing church. Um, he's actually in a prison cell, probably in Ephesus at the time, and this congregation uh, had been started by one of his protégés, um, this young leader in their fledgling movement named Epaphras. And so Paul is reaching out. Um, if you look at the first two verses, you'll actually see more accurately uh, Paul and Timothy are writing to this congregation, um, and we might pause there for a second. I don't know what your concept is of how these books got written. Um, I think today when we think of a writer, we think of someone who takes a retreat out to a cabin in the woods, and they seclude themselves for months and then emerge with a draft in hand. Um, maybe if that's the scriptures, they did that with a direct download from God. Um, but what we see when we read the New Testament, especially letters like Colossians, where we get a little peek behind the curtain, um, these are missionary letters. And they're written uh, from prison cells and on the run. I would say they're written by this broader missionary team. And in Colossians, we get the sense of that. This is not just Paul writing, it's Paul and Timothy. And later we hear that Onesimus has come, uh, and he'll factor in Philemon, which we'll look at later in the fall. Uh, we learn about the letter bearer, the one who brought this letter to the Colossian church. There's this missionary team behind these letters in the New Testament. Uh, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says we're to imagine Paul at work, sketching ideas, uh, talking to his companions, composing drafts of his letters. Uh, then they have to hire at considerable cost a scribe, a secretary, for the more official writing, and they'll probably write a letter for the congregation, and they'll write a copy or two for Paul and for his team. And then they have to either hire or find someone who can uh, deliver the letter. There's not Amazon or FedEx at the time. Um, and by the way, understanding that process, which I think fully happened under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually gives us some sense of why some of the letters from Paul seem a little different thematically. There's different needs in those churches, and maybe the team said, we need to express it this way. Maybe if some wording is different, it's just a, a different scribe writing that down. I just think that's helpful to know uh, versus some maybe uh, unhelpful ways people today might say, well, Colossians looks different than Romans. We don't even think Paul wrote it. Um, I think that's actually anachronistic. They don't understand how these are the products of a missionary team. And sometimes we don't bring that out and just let folks know, like the evidence is right here in the text. There's nothing hidden uh, to see that as we read the letter to the Colossians. Um, but what we see here is uh, Paul's excited 
Paul and his team, they're thrilled with the good start in Colossae, so they write this really positive, encouraging letter. They want to point this young church towards their next steps to mature in Christ. Um, They do want to warn them of some potential pitfalls in their broader culture and even within the church or the religious uh, uh, ideologies of their day here in Asia Minor. And I would just say as a young church here at St. Thomas, off to a good start, discerning next steps, this could not be more pitch perfect or timely uh, to us and for us to look at together here in the summer. So let's turn to Colossians 1. Uh, We'll take this in two sections, first verses 1 through 8 where we see Paul and his team are grateful for gospel growth. Then we'll look at verses 9 through 14, where we see their gratitude for the gospel fruit of this young church. And again, the first few verses, uh, they're fairly standard format for a first century letter. If you've read a letter from Paul, this looks pretty familiar. Uh, Really the most unique thing in Colossians is just Timothy's uh, prominence, that we see him listed really as a co-author here. Um, And notice too that Paul's authority, he doesn't know this church, So his authority is rooted in the authority of Jesus and in the very will of God. His tone is warm and affectionate. He's greeting uh, those who he calls saints. He says, you are faithful brethren, brothers and sisters. He extends greetings and he again introduces us to this unique situation because most of the letters from Paul, they are to churches that he knew and usually knew well. Um, He had either started those churches, or he had been an extended correspondence uh, with those churches or with those leaders, um, this is different because uh, here he doesn't know them personally. There's not a prior relationship for him to lean on, so he leans on the authority he has from Christ. Um, And the fact that he's writing to them, he's an apostle by the will of God, and he's excited that the growth of the gospel itself has momentum that it's actually going beyond his individual immediate work spreading like wildfire. In fact, it's one of his protégés, Epaphras. If you read in the book of Acts, we learn about Epaphras. It looks like he came to faith in Ephesus, where Paul was at work, and then he took the gospel home to Colossae, and it took root. And it started to grow there just like it was growing everywhere. So Paul's thrilled. Um, And by the way, they, they haven't met. But just because you haven't been properly introduced to a fellow brother or sister in Christ um, doesn't mean that you're not spiritual family. Doesn't mean that you're not united in the spirit and in our common uh, confession, united in the communion of the saints. And so for Paul, they haven't met, but they're connected. And not only that, he's been praying for them. Him and his team have been praying for them constantly. And the way he describes their good start in the faith is beautiful. Um, And it's characterized by this familiar uh, triad, these virtues, faith, hope, and love. He says, we always thank God. Um, That word's Eucharist. (laughs) We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And I would say, while Paul is giving Epaphras kind of credit for getting this started, you could almost say that the primary agent of mission is the gospel itself. Um, Paul kind of puts that into these verses. 
Um, later on, it becomes clear. This church, they're trying to figure out their next steps. How, how do we grow in our faith? And it looks like there is some, uh, there's some teaching or philosophy, either in their broader culture or the religious circles in their day, who uh, they would say, hey, here's a way to grow in mystical special knowledge. Um, if you want access to real spiritual power, here's how you access it. And, and Paul wants to say, no. <laughs> no, there's nothing more uh, mystical or powerful than the gospel. Uh, there is no one more wise or worthy of adoration than Jesus. Th these aren't step one, and then you move on to bigger and better things. Uh, growth in the Christian life, maturity in the Christian life comes through going deep in our contemplation and adoration of the gospel and the Lord Jesus. I mean, they're attracted to something mysterious. What is more mysterious than the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth? What is more powerful than the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you? And the Holy Spirit, the person and power of God himself, is filling the church with glory and beauty. Paul says you don't need to look out there to find something else. You need to look and see what God has given you already in the gospel and what he has done in and through Jesus. In verse 6, he's like, look, the gospel has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing and it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel is doing its work. The gospel is growing. It's been planted and rooted. It's flourishing and will bear fruit. There's a process underway. Bishop N.T. Wright says the main thing Paul wants to say in this passage is summed up in that idea. It's kind of a gardening illustration, right? He's delighted that the wonderful new plant of the gospel has been planted in Colossae, that it's bearing fruit and growing as indeed it is doing in the rest of the world. Um, and I don't have enough time to really track this rabbit trail, but the thing you should know about Colossae is it's a little bit of a has-been city at this point. Um, it's been overshadowed by other major cities um, in the region of Phrygia. Um, no one cool lives in Colossae anymore. Nothing happens there. Nothing is exciting there. Um, within five or ten years of this letter going to Colossae, a massive earthquake will decimate the city. They try to rebuild it, but that doesn't even take root because it's a has-been. I mean, it's so unimportant as I mentioned, the archaeological excavation is slated to take place this year. It's been over, it's been 2,000 years, and we've not bothered to dig up Colossae because it's that much of a has-been ignored city in the empire in Asia Minor in Turkey. And just imagine that you're in this has-been, nothing happens, nothing comes their city, and Paul says um, the gospel... Uh, this worldwide, world-changing gospel has come to you, just like it has throughout the world. You're not being left out of this, like you're being left out of everything. The most important thing you could be included in has come and been planted and is growing and bearing fruit, just like it is 
everywhere. So then he goes on to talk about this gospel fruit. Again, Paul and his team, they've been praying for this church since they heard about their good start in the faith. They're grateful for what's happening. And Paul goes on to say, hey, here's what I pray when I pray for you. Um, And again, by the way, I I just think Paul says that uh, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Um, Don't miss how strange that is. Um, Do you pray continuously for a person in the faith that you don't know? Or for a church you've never visited? That's odd, right? They, They would be praying continuously for this church they had never been connected with. And I would say it may be that a key takeaway from this passage might be to ask the Lord who you could pray for in this manner. Is there a church, is there a fellow believer, is there a ministry that you could begin devoting yourself to in prayer? Just like our friends up in Baltimore who are praying for you and praying for us. Um, Again, I can't follow that too far, but the content of Paul's prayer, it's beautiful. Um, This is the kind of thing you would want written above, uh, you know, you you would write it down and put it on the wall in calligraphy. Look at this prayer. Um, You would want to say, like, if we had a fellowship hall, look at what's being prayed for our church. And look at what Paul says. I'm praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so you can be really smart. No, that's not what he says. He says, so why am I praying for spiritual wisdom and understanding? So you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. They're praying for their holiness and their walk of life. They're praying that they would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. He's praying for their formation in Christ, their ongoing growth in holiness, the flourishing of their common mission. And it's not just that. He, he goes on to pray for strength and, and for them to have an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. He says, may you be strengthened with all power. Again, I think probably the Colossians were going, hey, we received Jesus, that's great. Now, where do we get the power? Where do we get the stuff? How do we do the things? And Paul's like, hey, I'm praying you'd be strengthened with all power. The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, the power that raised Jesus from the dead will be at work in and through your congregation. I'm praying with all power that you're strengthened according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Man, wouldn't you love someone to pray that for you on a regular basis? (laughs) Isn't it amazing to know that people are praying for our congregation in similar ways on a regular basis? Um, One thing we see over and over in this chapter is Paul's really interested in the will of God and what that means for him and for the Colossians. I want to just... Sit with that for a moment, the will of God. What do you think that means for them? I mean, I know I have a lot of uh, appointments and coffee meetings, and sometimes we'll talk about God's will. And usually if I'm sitting with someone talking about God's will, um, they're asking really good questions about what's God's will for me? Um, What does God want me to do? There's a personal facet where we're trying to discern what does it mean to, to have a vocation before the Lord? Um, am, I, am I called to joyful singleness? Am I called to be part of 
a relationship? Like, am I called to live in Athens? Am I supposed to be on mission here? Like, what is God's will for me? Um, and I would say Colossians has tons of information on that. We'll look at that, especially chapter uh, 3 um, in our series. But Paul is concerned that first, we know what God's will is and what God is up to more broadly. It says you need to know what God is doing in and through the gospel. And, and first and foremost, you need to know who Jesus is and the significance of him and what he's done in your life and what he's doing in other people's lives. And, and then with that in place, that framework of understanding then we can start prayerfully figuring out at the individual level how God calls um, us, what, what our particular uh, vocation or context or mission might be. Uh, Doug Moo, who's a New Testament scholar, um, he's like six foot nine, which is just fun. He's like this big, you know, C-3PO meets a praying mantis kind of a, a dude. He says, what Paul has in mind is not some particular or special direction for one's life, but a deep, abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and for the Colossians. So that if you want spiritual wisdom and understanding, if you want to know God's will, you need to know what God is up to in the gospel and what he's done in and through Jesus and where this whole story is going as God is reconciling all things in his son and making all things new um, and again, we're not left out of this. Verses 13 through 14 might be one of the most beautiful descriptions of salvation in the entire Bible. Look at what Paul writes. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Michael Byrd says the Colossians are invited to see their own lives as part of the story of the gospel as viewed through their experience of deliverance and their expression of faithfulness to the Messiah. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Um, during our first service, we had a number of new grad school students who have all just recently moved to Athens. Maybe some of you guys have recently moved to Athens you know, one of the most annoying things you have to do when you move is fill out that change of address form. Uh, and your mail never quite catches up, and you still get junk mail from the previous person who might have been at your residence. But Paul is saying, do you realize there's been a change of address? That, that you lived in the domain of darkness. You, you followed the futility of your own flesh and of sin and what you thought would make you happy and now you've had a change of address. You've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and there's so many ways that you can see that fleshed out in the scriptures from the exodus, from when uh, God's people are brought back from exile. I actually think one of the most interesting uh, ways we can see this is the parable of the Good Samaritan that we had read, the gospel reading today. Um, I don't know if you've uh, studied the parable of the Good Samaritan recently, um, usually when I hear that parable taught, it goes something like this. Uh, they're trying to figure out what it means to be faithful. They're trying to figure out who is the neighbor of this scribe who sought to justify himself. Jesus tells this parable. This man went down. 
Uh, He was beaten by robbers. He was left half dead on the side of the road. And then the religious person came, and they didn't do anything. And this other person came, and they didn't do anything. But that Samaritan, who was viewed as tricky, they came and did something. So be like the Samaritan. Um, And and there's a sense in which, on, on the surface level, that is true. But I actually think at a deeper level, what Jesus is telling that person that wanted to justify himself is when you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, do you know where you are and do you know where I am? You're the one who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the robbers attacked. And they took everything from you. And they beat you and they took your clothes and they left you half dead. You were in the domain of darkness. And what you needed then was actually Jesus, the Good Samaritan, to come and to take notice and to care and to rescue you and redeem you and bind up your wounds and heal you and then pay everything you owed to the innkeeper. That's what it means to say he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, where Jesus redeems and restores and takes care of us and heals us, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He wants them to remember that, to remember what it was like to live apart from Jesus and to lean into that as they think about growing in their faith. Because he does want them to grow. He wants them to mature. That Towards the end of chapter 1, Uh, Paul writes, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, uh, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Um, I've actually kind of, uh, for fun, named this sermon series after that Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, but that you uh, is not you singular, it's you plural. Um, I actually think that when we uh, read the New Testament, we actually really miss something. When we don't have uh, an understanding of where is something directed to us individually and where is something given to the church. So we're going to call this series Christ in Y'all, <laughs> the hope of glory. Um, Because this is not, you have some personal internal spark of flame. No, this is, God is doing something in y'all, the church. The the Spirit is indwelling and empowering y'all, the church. That's the hope of glory, the very presence of the risen Jesus in the midst of his people, uh, bearing fruit and maturing. Bishop N.T. Wright says what they need to know if they want to grow as Christians. Increasing in wisdom, power, patience, and thanksgiving is the centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Because the more they get to know and know about Jesus, the more they will understand who the true God is, what he's done, who they are as a result, and what it means to live in and for him. The Christian faith isn't simply a particular way of being religious or being saved or anything like that. It isn't simply a different way of holiness. It's about Jesus Christ. In period. And as I was thinking about how this letter could speak to us um, as a young church, I was thinking about just the last kind of few years. 
Man, there's been so many conversations that we've needed to have, new conversations, to try to figure out what's it mean to be faithful in the midst of incredibly complex and contentious times. Um, what is God calling us to in this context, in this day? What, what does it look like um, to follow Jesus and to honor him? And I think we've had to navigate and address and, and learn about so many issues in our culture, in our world, in our churches. And that's been needed. Um, that's been necessary. And that will continue to be necessary. But what I was reminded reading this in Colossians, you know, they've got all kinds of issues that they need to address. They've got false teaching. They've got cultural pressure. They've got pitfalls. They've got things they could fall into. And Paul doesn't say, great, let's do a sermon series on all those issues and things that are problems. Instead, he says, let's make sure we understand Jesus and the gospel. Let's have a positive ethic where we know who Jesus is. We focus on and adore the Lord Jesus. We think about what he's done in and through the gospel, and then we let these other conversations be good and natural implications from that, but not the main thing. And I wonder if some of the fatigue and discouragement uh, that we see in the church right now is that we've been so preoccupied by the contentious issues of our day, which again, we need to speak to and think through, but we can't focus on them and them alone. Paul returns us and roots us in the gospel and in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. He says, you need to know that, and then you can grow, and then you actually have firm standing to think through and address and figure out the context of all these other things that are vying for our attention and our affection. You need to remember what it was like to be in the domain of darkness, I mean, some of us have been Christians for so long, I don't think we remember the futility of what it meant not to know Jesus. I think some of us look at our lives and we're so frustrated as Christians thinking, is this all there is to it? Never considering. Think of all the Lord has preserved us and saved us from that we don't even realize. I mean, if I look back and think about the path I was on as a teenager, I mean, like, I can be a jerk today, <laughs> But man, if I think about the kind of person I would be with decades of just living for myself, it'd be horrendous to think through. Paul says, remember who you were. Remember what it's like now to live in the kingdom of his beloved son and have a heart for those who have not been transferred yet. Pray for them, love them, serve them, share this powerful gospel message with them. The young church at Colossians, they're off to a good start. But again, they're in danger of getting distracted by too many secondary things. There are pitfalls and quicksand in their culture and the religions and the philosophies of their day. And instead of just dismantling them and focusing on what's wrong, Paul says, let's remember what's right. Let's remember what God has done in and through uh, Jesus. That the very power and presence of God is at work um, in his church. And then as Paul does so often, uh, he gives that beautiful description of salvation and he's talking about Jesus and he almost can't help himself. But verses 15 through 20, he just breaks out into this song of praise about who Jesus is. It might have even been a, a favorite song or hymn of the early church. It could have been a creed uh, as they thought about the supremacy of Jesus 
and who he was, but it's just like, it seems like it comes out of nowhere. Um, th- there's a German theologian, Adolf uh, Deisman. He was a, an archaeologist. He studied the Greek language. He says, when he opens the doors of the epistles of the Colossians, it's as if Johann Sebastian Bach himself sat at the organ. Um, have you ever come across an organ playing? It soars. There's light and color. Um, about this time last year, my son Noah and I, we took a trip uh, to Tennessee. We were actually going to a concert, and we are staying in these little, little homes, and we went to visit the University of the South in Swanee, Tennessee. Anyone know the University of the South? It's like Hogwarts College, essentially. Um, and, you know, we started kind of poking around in different doors to see what we could see. Uh, Noah's, you know, he's, he's going to be looking at colleges soon. He's only seen, like, big UGA. So I was like, let me show you this kind of cool, you know, um, smaller liberal arts Christian college, Christian, it used to be Christian uh, college, uh, University of the South. Um, but we opened this one, it's, it's their main chapel, um, and we opened the door, and it was unlocked. It was like the first door we had found that was unlocked. And we were excited because at that point, we had been about 15 months since we had stepped inside of a church, because <laughs> this was last summer. Um, for us, normal church, like this time would be, we're under a pavilion and we are sweating profusely, but doggone it, we're going to worship Jesus. <laughs> and that was beautiful for its time. But man, we swept pollen and we, you know, there were CrossFit runners. There was a whole thing. Um, anyways, we walk into this chapel and it is breathtaking. We've not been in a church 15 months. And we go in and there's an organist and an oboe player preparing for Evensong. And we just sat. And like, I think, you know, like here's a teenager who's just in awe. And the music is just soaring. And it's filling us with life and beauty. And we're not saying, what do we get from this? Or what does this mean for us? We're going, oh my word. Look at the glory of what's happening here. Um, That's what Paul does in verses 15 through 20. He looks at the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus. And so to close our first week in this series, uh, Christ in Y'all, the Hope of Glory, um, I want us to just hear these soaring words from uh, the Apostle Paul and Timothy. He, that is Christ Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.